Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Deirdre Brosa. She is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. Debo, welcome back to the pod. Hello, I'm happy to be here once again from really? the North, the Great North. The Great White North. We appreciate it. We know that you are on vacation and it's we're like 90% through S&P 500 earnings. So I thought you and I take the pulse of the public markets here, get a sense for what expectations were, what the sort of sentiment is coming out of it. Also, after Debo and I are done, I do the same thing in the private markets with Rick Heitzman. He is the co-founder and managing partner at First Mark Capital. So stick around for that conversation. The, let's talk a little bit. We're, we're recording this Tuesday afternoon into the close here. It feels like a very different mood than a few weeks ago if we want to focus on some of the mega cap tech stocks that you and I had been previewing into their Q2 prints and getting a sense for what we thought the guidance might be and how the stocks, given the rallies that most of them had, how they might trade, even if they put up good quarters in guidance. And listen, just easily taking stock. Microsoft and Apple are down about 10% from last month's all-time highs. There were new all-time highs there, but then there was really good results out of Alphabet, out of Amazon, out of Meta. All three of those are trading particularly well. Let's start with the mega caps because that really, in my opinion, I think at least if we want to focus on what happened with Microsoft, the fever has broken a little bit and, and maybe that is the result of high expectations and the bar. Like for them to jump over over it was going to have to be a big beat and raise. Yeah, maybe it's a good thing, right? Like you said, they're not actually all that far from their all-time highs. So if this market rally is broadening a little bit, and I mean, you could even argue Microsoft isn't even down enough for all the hype to come out. It's basically investors just saying that, okay, we're going to wait a little longer for this. Um, to actually monetize, right? You can talk about these plans. and But even the plan to charge $30 a month per user for generative AI tools Yes, that could result in billions and billions of revenue, but this could also be commoditized by then, right? So for investors just to take, what, 10% off the table, it doesn't even feel like that much. Yeah, no, especially when you consider how most of these mega cap stocks were trading at the start of the year before we really had a good sense of what ChatGBT4 um, had the ability to do within Microsoft as far as their productivity tools. I know there was initially a lot of excitement about what it might mean for their search share. And it feels like we don't even really talk about that anymore. And I think to your point is that both Apple and Microsoft saw their multiples push to levels that, you know, it was at levels that we hadn't seen in a very long time, discounting a lot of very good news. The news on Apple is a little different. And I want to go back to that week of July 18th and 19th. And these were the highs in both of these stocks. And Microsoft announced the pricing, like you said, of their co-pilot suite of generative AI tools. There was an article in Bloomberg on the next day, on the 19th, that had, I don't know, depicted Apple scurrying around to come up with competitors to some of these other ones. Salesforce announced the pricing. All of those stocks topped out that week. And I think it might be a really important week. To your point, it's like, how much will these be commoditized? What do they come at the expense of other buying decisions? 
decisions, you know what I mean, on the software space. Is your sense that there's more froth if we want to take it back to where we were in March? Because it really was March during the regional banking crisis where money started to flow into a wide swath of names. It wasn't just the Microsoft that seemed to be at the forefront of this new AI push. So I think that there's certainly a lot of froth, especially in the startup phase, right? Where companies are getting funded now and they don't even have any revenue to show for it. And they all are claiming to help advertisers, for example, write better ads. That is so commoditized at this point. There's five different startups doing the exact same thing. But what in the mega cap space, I think is indicative of a thinking that they are going to be the ones that ultimately win. So these startups are creating features, not necessarily products or platforms, but the mega caps, even if a BARD or a chat GPT is commoditized. And what Amazon likes to say is you're going to have a large language model or an application very specifically for different sectors, like a healthcare bot is going to exist. You're not just going to use a chat GPT for everything. And the most of these dollars flowing into mega cap, the public companies, is the idea that they're going to be the ultimate winners here, that the shift is going to be huge. Nobody I talk to, at least in Silicon Valley, denies that. But yeah, there's going to be some froth along the way, and that's going to get flushed out. But still, those mega caps are going to be the ones standing at the end of the day and bigger than ever. Microsoft, not to beat a dead horse here, but again, the stock is at 324. It's down from like 350. And when they were per calendar Q1, um, the stock was 275. So when you think about you know how much froth is in the name in just the last few months, I think a little fear back in the market would make a whole heck of a lot of sense. But I want to tie this together a little bit, D, with what we heard out of the semi-space. And we know that there are very few pure plays as it relates to providing chips to run the training for these models. And, and we know that NVIDIA has been at the forefront. It's gained hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap since they reported in late May and guided up for the current period. They don't re uh, report until August um, 23rd. But if you put together a little bit of what we heard out of the semis, if you look at what Taiwan Semi had to say, I know we talked about it. They said all the increased demand and enthusiasm for chips in the AI space is really not, it's not taking care of what they're seeing in the weakness in other end markets. And that was confirmed by the guidance in Texas Instruments. It was confirmed by the guidance in Qualcomm. It was confirmed by the guidance in AMD. Intel had a slightly better story, but it was coming off of very low expectations. When you put the kind of software implications together with, I guess, on the semi front, it does paint a picture that we could see a slow period over the next few months until we do see some more commercialized applications of this and a, I guess a clearer path towards revenues and then revenues that come with like earnings that, that, that could be quantifiable and justify some of the multiples that we're seeing already. I think you're right on those end markets, though. If you are not operating in the generative AI space and making those GPUs or working towards that, that you're not seen as a winner because those end markets are still slow. And it's so interesting. What my takeaway from mega cap earnings was there was one clear winner. Sometimes it was mentioned, sometimes it wasn't. But Google, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, they all talked about spending plans, except for Amazon, Microsoft, Meta and Google, they're all going to be spending more money than before. And that's all going towards NVIDIA. There's really no other game in town, right? It has what, like 90% of this market. I was reading one note that even if it has 75% of the market, the valuation still works because they're going to be making that much money. But it's not just the semis that are working on this, Dan. It's also the mega caps themselves. Amazon loves to talk about its own custom chip, AI chip that it's developing. So there could be competition on that front and maybe they're all starting from a similar space. 
who's going to manufacture it though goes back to TSMC, right? Maybe an Intel, though that's still a very long way off. Those are the guys that actually will be manufacturing the tip, but the chip, but designing it, it's a race right now. And that's what everyone was looking for in those semi earnings and the mega cap earnings. One of the names last week that I found really interesting, a name that you follow very closely is Amazon and had a 10% gap after its earnings. And that stock has had a big run. If you want to look from the start of May, I think the stock was near 100. Now it's trading very near 140. And it really wasn't about the concern as far as cloud and AWS that got the stock going. It was their retail business. And I know that when we think about the market share that Microsoft and Google have been able to gain against AWS and the growth rates of AWS are not something we've seen, I think, ever, if you think about like low to mid-teens or something like that. But it was the retail business. And I know you were reporting on this a lot heading into it. I think one of the reasons why the stock had been an underperformer in like the back half of 21 and all of 2022 to major mega caps was that huge spend, right, on the infrastructure and logistics. Talk to me a little bit about that because it seems that this is now working out for Andy Jazzy. And I know that they had to course correct some overspending, especially very early in his tenure. I think he took over, what, about two years ago or so, but it seems like it's paying off for him right now. When you look at a chart of the mega caps over the last, let's say, five years, Amazon is the clear underperformer, exactly why you said, because it has been spending so much money. And yes, a few years ago, I think that felt like an overspend, right? They basically overhauled every bit of their logistics network, which is already gigantic, and then they doubled it. So that actually made them unprofitable for a number of quarters. And so they were in the penalty box. They were treated as a mega cap that wasn't as profitable, that wasn't the kind of fortress that you see from Apple or Google. It didn't have the same kind of cost efficiencies that you saw all at once with Meta. But this quarter was kind of Amazon's time to shine. It made what looked like an overspend look really smart, not like an overspend at all. Like it was spending to reap the benefits right now. Because when you say it was about the core e-commerce business, it was about efficiency. The margins still aren't great. What are they? I think like around 4%. They're not really good, but it's faster and better than ever, right? Customers are getting their stuff quicker than ever. And there's a wider selection, which Amazon loves to talk about. So that the business, that side of the business is powering ahead, or at least getting back to where it was perhaps pre-pandemic. And then you've got AWS, which is the profit engine, right? Leveling out, or at least stabilizing is what they called it on the call, which was such a change from the previous quarter where they said, watch out, it could drop another 500 basis points, that revenue growth rate. So it feels like it's like a, all everything came together for Amazon, all of that spend. And on top of that, where you heard that the other mega caps were going to be spending to overhaul their cloud infrastructure, Amazon didn't say that, which is actually such a curious point for me, because AWS is the number one player in cloud. Did they spend as well? Do they have all of the GPUs that they need to allow their cloud customers to develop and take advantage of this AI boom? They didn't really say that. And they said that, sure, we will spend more if we need to, and that would be a good thing. But it was remarkable to me that they're not spending billions and billions of dollars more on that CapEx when their rivals are. On the cloud infrastructure standpoint, Datadog, which is a cloud-based infrastructure software company is down like 16, 17% after its report and guide. We haven't heard this in the software space in, in a while here. They guided lower for the current quarter and for the back half of the year. When you think about this company, okay, they are 
profitable on an adjusted basis, mildly losing money on a gap basis here. But this is a, a revenue business that is growing. I expect it to grow 25% a year for the next few years, 80% gross margin company. And like it wasn't that horrible of a guide, but the stock is down 16%. I find that really interesting. And then I look around, I'm looking at my main fact set um, screen. I'm looking at a snowflake is down 6%. I'm looking at some other names, 7%. Palo Alto, which was last week, was down 8% after its earnings and continues. It hasn't seen an uptick since it reported. So it's down, you know, more than 10 or so percent. It seems like some of the air is coming out of some of these higher valuation names. And again, when I talk about, you know, the data dog, it's 71 times earnings, it's 14 times sales, and it didn't seem that bad of a guide. So that to me is getting my antennas up a little bit about the dog days of summer, a lot of good news in the markets and some of these kind of secular stories or so. Might we see an investor base that's getting a little bit more comfortable with higher rates for longer, and maybe you're going to get a bit pickier about valuations. I wonder too, though, if these companies, you mentioned a Datadog and a Snowflake, if they are going to be part of this generative AI boom, maybe investors don't recognize it yet. They haven't spelled it out because there was this interesting chart that I was looking at a few months ago where even when you have the mobile shift, right, it was the chips at the beginning that were recognized by investors and their valuations got bit up. But then it was the infrastructure that started to get bit up. So maybe we're still in that first phase and Datadog and Snowflakes and some of the others still have to prove to investors that they are going to be a significant part of the shift. Because right now it feels like maybe it's just the chips and the hyperscalers, the big cloud players. But I think that you need to maybe have a small mobile team, a smaller, excuse me, more mobile team that's focused on one thing being more specialized like a snowflake perhaps to companies that want to take advantage of the shift. Yeah, and I just make one point about the guide down in the stocks re reaction in Datadog is again, I don't think there was any real big high profile guides down in this period, at least in the stuff that we look at. And yeah, Netflix was disappointing on some metrics and Tesla was disappointing on some metrics in the stocks traded off nine and a half percent the day after, and they're lower than where they were even after that first gap lower. And to me, that just gives a sense that sentiment has cooled a little bit. We started this whole segment talking about the fever breaking around this secular shift that has powered, you know, the NASDAQ and, and a big chunk of the S&P 500. It, you know, if I pull up the NASDAQ 100 chart, and I know this is a podcast and you can't see it, it is bottom left from the first week in January, upper right until mid-July. The QQQ, which we know the top seven or eight names. If you want to call them the Magnificent Seven, I might call them the Hateful Eight. There was a guy on Fast Money. I can't take, I can't, a guy named Stuart Kaiser from Citigroup came on our show two weeks ago and we were making fun of Guy because he hates those sorts of acronyms and those names. And we said, the Mag Seven, he said in the break, he said, how about the Hateful Eight? And we said, dude, why didn't you say that on the show? You would have been a genius. And he said, next time. Do you call it, because I love that, do you call it the Hateful Eight because you hate how concentrated it is and you think it's a big bubble? I go back and forth D, on that whole notion of a bubble. Sometimes there's this very negative connotation about the term bubble. And to me, it doesn't really mean anything because we know that bubbles can continue in, to inflate and inflate. Ultimately, when they pop, they overshoot to the downside just like they did to the upside. There's plenty to be made money, you know what I mean, while the thing is still inflating and the narrative is still intact. And oftentimes you can't really put your finger on the reason why it started to deflate and then pop. 
I'll go back to that July 18th, 19th. Once we were able to quantify the pricing of it, and then you start thinking about what's been pulled forward. So I go back to the QQQ and let's just say those eight stocks, okay, make up 50% of the weight of an index of 100 stocks, okay? And it went from 260 to just recently at its highs of 385 from the start of this year. That was a 45% or so rise. At some point, we will have a 10 to 15% correction. And I'll take you back to a level, the August 22 breakout, that would be a basically a 14% retracement if we went back there to let's say 335. I wanna use the August 22 level to me, why that's important. That's exactly what Apple, when it sold off 11% from its highs, went back to. Microsoft, if it were to go back to that breakout level from August of 2022, and that would be also somewhat of a 15% retracement or so. Those seem like levels that make sense to me. And then what do you do there? Then if you are a long-term investor and you believe in the secular shift, and you just said it 10 minutes ago, many of the folks that you talk to, both public and private market investors, really smart investors, they believe this is going to be a multi-year, maybe a multi-decade trend. You want to play it through the QQQ because you do get a, like a concentration of those eight names, but then there might be a five or $10 billion market cap company that creates a tool, like you also just said, that, and that becomes a big one. And that's how you get that exposure. Once we take the froth out, I want to start dollar cost averaging down 10, 15% or so in the QQQ, and that's the trade. That's how you play this. That's a great point. But do you think it ever corrects that much? When you go back to August of 2022, you didn't have the chat GPT phenomenon. Do you wait for that? Or do you think it's just keeps going from here? Yeah, I do think it does. And you also didn't have the Fed funds rate at five and a half percent. You also didn't have an economy, in my opinion, to start to demonstrate the slowing based on the pull of the liquidity. You also had optimism back then that China was going to come back online. And it has, but it hasn't materialized. So to me, what I like to think about is if everyone's so enthusiastic on one side of the boat, at some point, it's going to start to correct in a way that people at first just say, ah, that's the run of the mill, three to 5% correction. Before you know it, it's 10%. And then before you know it, there's utter fear and you have a VIX that's 25 30, and that's when you want to start layering into this stuff. That's my trader mentality, my fast money hat like, that I'm putting on here a little bit. And so I do think that can happen. and It'll probably happen when you least expect it. One last thing before we get out of here, and I thought this was a really interesting story that you might appreciate because you are sitting there now on vacation from a place where you used to broadcast on a daily basis in 2020 and 2021. I'm not going to dox you. I'm not going to say where you are, but I thought it was interesting. Like one company that I think encapsulated just all of the excitement about technology and what it had to offer, especially in the unknowing throes of a global pandemic where people were working from home, they were schooled from home, they were doing everything, and that was Zoom. And we remember talking about it at the time, and even into the pandemic, Zoom was a profitable company, and it's still a profitable company. And you may be able to argue that it's probably run better right now, down 80% from its all-time highs, that's in the stock, than it was when it was up hundreds of a percent trading at ridiculous multiples. But the headline there is that the company's trying to get all of their employees back to the office. Talk to me a little bit about just the psychology of that, how we've come full circle. And this stock is not far from its 52-week lows, can't get out of its own way. What's the AI play there to get this thing going? You know what? That's such a good analogy to where we are right now. At the beginning of the pandemic, I remember sitting here, Zooming with a bunch of parents for my kids preschool, thinking, isn't this crazy? And Zoom became this verb, right? But then all of a sudden, 
it was commoditized, right? Everyone could do it. Teams had a version of it. Uh, people just started using FaceTime. <laughs> By the way, the mega caps, right? The mega caps commoditized it. They didn't really have to spend any more. They already had these crystal balance sheets. So I think that's an interesting side of it too, a reminder that something can become a household name like chat GPT and still be replicated. But the whole idea of Zoom bringing people back to the office is fascinating. People are saying, okay, this is the end of work from home, which I don't know. I go back and forth on this, Dan, as to whether I think that everyone's just going to be back in the office five days a week, full time. I I think that might be the way that we're heading with maybe some exceptions, but (laughs) (laughs) What an example of the pandemic that just was a blip on the radar. I'll say this. And I also think that while this stock can't get out of its own way, it's down 88% from its 2021 highs. It's only up 15% from its 52-week lows. This is a company that is very profitable. They still have about four and a half billion dollars in revenues. And believe it or not, D, those are peak revenues, okay? So think about that, right? So here's a stock trading at about 16 times earnings, about four and a half times sales. They have five and a half billion dollars in cash. They have no debt and a $20 billion market capitalization down 88% from its highs with 79% gross margins. This is a cheap stock, right? So for me, I think we might see some M&A. This might be a really interesting sort of play to add this with some other tools because there will be a hybrid model from a productivity standpoint from here on out. I agree with you 100%. So again, I think there's opportunities in this market. PayPal is another one where it can't get out of its own way at one point it had a greater market cap in 2021 than Bank of America did, okay? But it's also trading at a well below market multiple. It's got a good balance sheet. There's still a very profitable company. So Expedia, you and I talked about that one last week. Again, can't get it out of its own way. I think there's gonna be some really interesting names to pick through once we do have another sell-off and some froth is taken out of some of these larger names. Remember Zoom wanted to, what was the company that it wanted to acquire and the regulator shut it down? It was a call service company. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was trying to turn itself into a platform, not just a product. And I wonder what it could have not worked out as well because Zoom may be an acquisition target, but I don't know what happens to all these companies. It's a good question. All the companies that went public in the heyday of 2021 at these massive valuations. I always thought like a Zoom and a Slack could work well together, but of course, Salesforce acquired Slack for what seems like an astronomical amount now. $26 billion. 26 billion. Zoom was trying to buy, the, the, I forgot about this one, 5.9 for nearly $15 billion. And obviously that was going to be a stock deal that was going back to September, 2021. And I think that is a really great point. Another one, and I remember you reporting on this at the time. Do you remember in 2021, where supposedly PayPal's was kicking the tires on Pinterest. So all of these companies were thinking about, they knew their stocks were really inflated. They knew that they had a currency to do some deals. Why not float it in the situation of PayPal? That was the all-time high here. Again, all right, listen, D, I really appreciate you making time for us on OK Computer. Enjoy your week off. We hope to talk to you next week again. Will do. Thanks for having me as always. All right. Stick around for my conversation with Rick Heitzman of FirstMark Capital. Thanks again to Debo.
Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Welcome back to OK Computer. I am here with my good friend, Rick Heitzman. He is the managing partner at Firstmark Capital. Rick, welcome back to the pod. How's it going, Dan? How's summer been? I, you know what? You and I got off to a very hot start in the summer here, and 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 we had a little Springsteen in Hyde Park. We did a little F1. We did a little celebratory action in some other areas, and then I feel like we haven't really connected. I had to go back to then. work. I had to go back to work. I, I know we did. We had a hot week and a half there in early July, but we're back, baby. Lots to cover here, man. I wanted to do a little bit of a heat check on the private markets. Debo and I just had a great conversation just taking stock of Q2 earnings season and what we heard from some of the biggest drivers here, but I also wanted to get a sense of kind of what you're thinking here, because we think about everyone's so optimistic as we get into a new year. We just got through the midpoint of the year, and it's been a great year in the public markets. It feels like there's still some trepidation in the private markets, whether it be valuations. I, like my inbox over the weekend with the information, there was a whole host of articles that just got me thinking here. One of them was venture from still writing small checks, unicorns, fire sales, tidal wave of down rounds hit startups. I just mentioned the word optimism, but we started out the year, there was a ton of pessimism about the private markets. I think in the public markets, people were ready to turn the page. So let's do a mid-year sort of pulse yeah, check let's do the here. temperature check. What's, yeah. what's the pulse check? What's going on? Probably flashing back almost two years ago, going into Labor Day 2021, we were throwing up every red flag we could find saying this market is so overheated, it's going to break. It's going to bust soon. We didn't think it was going to be in a month, but it was. And through all of last year, there was an increasing pessimism that I think some folks held on in the venture markets and the private markets through the first quarter, even through the first half on the expectation it's not going to be that bad. But I think we were telling our listeners that, hey, it's going to be that bad. And if there's a long party, there's a long hangover. So there's going to be an equal amount of time it takes for recovery as it took during those boom times. And it's not going to take the 12 years of a booming venture market, but there is going to be a time of recovery and there is going to be a time of renormalization, and especially because a lot of the entrepreneurs hadn't lived through. And actually, frankly, a lot of the venture capitalists hadn't even lived through a downturn before. So now we're at a point where we got to figure out what to do. And earlier this year, I think there was a lot of pessimism. And I think that changed right around the beginning of Q2. I think we had the end of Q1 pulse check, temperature check. And I said, hey, it feels like things are starting to move again. It feels like there's been a normalization of deal dynamics, valuation expectation, and a sense of we're going to start, you're going to start seeing the gears moves. And it always starts with two things. Always starts with some kind of reason for people to be optimistic. And probably in the last six to nine months, it's been 
AI and generative AI in particular. And what you're seeing is, hey, this is a new fundamental change. And this is going to be maybe the next wave of innovation that we're going to see globally. Second thing is, hey, the best is also going to be led out by the best companies. And whether that's in the public market or private markets, we're going to see the best companies get financing done. A lot of the great companies in our portfolio got great financings done because they had great revenue traction. They had great teams. They were participating in great markets, whether AI or elsewhere. And those were actually competitive financings at a time where a lot of people were accusing venture capitalists of tending to their flock and not looking externally. And so now where we are is there's still probably a lot of sick puppies. And, you know, as you alluded to, you started to see some of the unicorns who were worth several billion dollars be sold for a couple hundred million dollars. And you're starting to see some of that come out of the system. And I think the next six months are going to be some of those companies which might have had an old business model and we'll, we'll call it by name Hopin, which was really designed for the virtual world. And now as all of us are coming back to in real life, it's probably not that important and probably overbuilt in terms of the things that they were doing. So how does that company then sold to Ring Central for a couple hundred million dollars, obviously had some IP, had a good audience, but is not going to be one of the next great companies. So both entrepreneurs and VCs are realizing that it might be time to recycle our time and capital. And that's starting to work. And then as those entrepreneurs either leave companies or sell companies and come back to the market, what they're doing is they have much more realistic expectations than they had in 2020 and 2021. After, frankly, even at first mark, we were a little bit slow last year as it was really hard to get to deals as pricing expectations hadn't adjusted, even though we were willing to and, and aggressively thinking about getting the best deals done with the best companies. It was hard for that trade to cross. And I think this year, it's been much different. I have you know two signed term sheets out there of deals that should close in the next couple of weeks. I think the firm is acting similarly aggressively. And I think that we're still in a market where people have those much more realistic valuation expectations. The venture market, just as it lags the public markets going into this downturn, it's also going to lag the public markets coming out of the downturn. And what you're going to see is the thing that really drives venture capitalists' egos and confidence is liquidity. And so until you start seeing great exits, and largely a lot of the best exits are driven by the public markets. So until the IPO markets reopen, you're really not going to see the capital spigot turn back on. But in the interim, I think you're going to see a, a kind of a renewed optimism and people picking their heads up and thinking about what's next. All right. So that's a really great point here, liquidity, right? And so when you talk about just the private markets lagging the public markets, we also talk about a lot, or you'll hear economists and strategists talk about the lag of the just tightening of liquidity. We had this amazing period post-financial crisis of just unlimited liquidity. And then we had this pandemic and we threw $5 trillion of fiscal and monetary stimulus at that. And then we saw this absolute explosion in asset values in the back half of 2020, first half of 2021. And again, you should, great wild term. speculation. Yeah, but you, I think you just named the pod here, bro. The longer the party, the longer the hangover. If you think about a little bit the lag effect of interest rate hikes that came to battle the inflationary pressures of all that liquidity, okay? So we have a NASDAQ that's up nearly 40% or so. That's the NASDAQ 100. With the S&P 500 that's up 17 or 
so percent, down a few percent from its recent highs here. You know, there's a lot of folks saying that the leading economic indicators are likely, you know, we've had this recession pushed off, but they're signaling a slowdown right now, okay? So the lag effect of all that tightening is going to work its way through at least the public markets and the economy. Are you expecting the same? And does that maybe push out those exits, right? Does it push out the IPO market opening up again if we were to see, let's say, the NASDAQ and the S&P come in a little bit? And I wonder also, does that make it more likely that we see maybe some strategic M&A as the exit like platform that is more attractive, let's say, to companies? Because that's where you can get some of the valuations, whether they be public market companies that are trading at 30 times, that were trading at 16 times a year and a half ago, and they have the currency to make some of those acquisitions in the private markets. So I think he asked two questions. First of all, are we going to start seeing M&A exits? I think we will, because I think that there's a lot of private companies that are dying for liquidity, both from the investor side as well as the entrepreneur side. And you are seeing a very strong public market, stronger than the private market. The relative valuation is going to benefit a lot of these companies. Large cap companies are largely being held hostage by Lena Khan, but some of the smaller companies in doing some strategic M&A seems to be in the cards. And we've even seen that in our portfolio. First part of your question, and I'm answering reverse order. The second piece would be, you know, a conversation we had at our partners meeting. I know sometimes we talk here about, let's open up to what, what we might be talking about around our partners table. The second part of that is companies are still trying to titrate what it means for their business model. And it was all sales and marketing all the time. It was grow at all costs in 2020 and 2021. And then demand dried up. The cost of capital skyrocketed 18 months ago. And they said, all right, how do we build a profitable business model? As that was happening, they were cutting different pieces of the business. Also, sales cycles elongated as everybody else was concerned about their cost of capital and being capital efficient. And there was just a bunch of things moving around. And I think we're now at a point in the cycle, a little over a year later, where we're really starting to understand those businesses better. And sometimes you take costs out, you take too many costs out, you're not showing the right go-to-market strategy, you're not being the most efficient, you might overshoot or undershoot. And now I think, at least in our portfolio, that we're seeing those companies be able to really get to the fine knobs and dials and really understand their business model in a way we probably haven't seen in a decade of, hey, we're really thoughtful about how we use capital. Capital. We're really thoughtful about our long-term model. We're really thoughtful about our costs. And we're really getting to a place where when they become public companies in the next year or two, I think they're going to be much higher quality public companies. In, in that partners meeting, when you talk about how you allocate capital, this whole notion of dry powder, right? So this was the story and the information we'll put in the show notes, venture firm still writing small checks despite $271 billion in dry powder. And it also feels like, Rick, that every VC that I know, not only do they have dry powder, but they're out there raising capital too. So I'm just curious, what does that mean for valuations here? We talked about the unicorns that were minted in 2020 and having a hard time here because maybe the business models just, they had that accelerated but then the interest in the markets have just moved on to sexier sort of themes, right? A little bit. It went from consumer and digitization of everything, and we're all stuck at home and all that sort of dynamics to things that are really ultimately going to be powered by machine learning and AI. And that just seems like the page has turned a little bit. So talk to me a little bit on the dry powder front. It seems like a lot of VCs are ready to move on from some of the things that they were allocating capital to in that whole kind of excitement. All the VCs who are in Web3, 
then in crypto now are AI specialists. Um, you know, maybe they spend a little bit time, a little bit of time. It's a good meme. It's a good infe- meme. Infectious diseases in early 2020. People have moved on. So there's a concept of dry powder, and there's about 171 million dollars. Someone calculated of a billion dollars of dry powder in the venture ecosystem, and people were always saying, "Hey, that money has to be put to work." But if you go back to the early aughts and uh, the echo of the large fundraisers in the late 90s, a lot of that money dissipated. Maybe it was a sidecar of a public fund that then got reabsorbed into the public fund. Maybe it was a family office who stopped making these types of investments. So some of that capital is not available. And good friend of the pod, Josh Wolf, has the concept of wet powder. How much capital is really available? So you take that big pie of a huge headline number, then you say, hey, some of that capital will go away. Those funds might get shut down. Those funds might get downsized. And then there is this pot where we're unsure how big that is of firms just supporting their companies. And they're just saying, hey, I'm not going to look at new deals, but I'm trying to get these companies right, especially our best companies and our winners. And I either have to play offense or defense to support those companies. And especially for the biggest funds, that's a sizable amount of capital. And whether it's they're kicking the can down the road because they don't want to revalue a company or they can't figure something out, or there's a financing round where they have to either protect their position or play offense, all those things not only chew up general partners' bandwidth, but it also chews up their capital. And then once you get through those two pieces of triage, then it's actually the dollars to put to work. And I would still say, when talking to my friends and colleagues and other managing partners and GPs out there, I still think there's a lot of sick puppies. I I still think there's maybe a little bit more fear than greed out there in the market. So although the machinery is starting to work, I think a lot of people are spending time with their existing companies and they haven't really been as aggressive, except if they believe that generative AI is the next big thing and they're going to pile into a trend. But I think you're going to start to see even some of the larger mega trends that we've invested in over the last 10 years that we think will persist. Things like consumer marketplaces, things like digital health and health being the largest part of our economy, the fastest growing part of our economy, but the tremendous laggard based on technology and our ability to you know use digital to provide both a higher quality as well as low cost healthcare is a trend that we're going to see for probably the rest of our lives. So we're going to see these mega trends will, will persist. There'll be great companies built out of those. And hopefully people are paying attention, not paying too much attention so they'd want to compete with us, but paying some attention because they're otherwise they're going to miss some great companies. I want to switch gears a little bit because there was a blog post over the weekend from our friend, Packy McCormick at Not Boring. He is a relatively new VC who made his bones. I think we all became aware of him because of Twitter and his, I think, prolific blog. And he had a post called WTF happened in 2023. And I kind of want to bookend it with an OG VC (laughs) who does not blog often, but when he does, he seems to set an agenda for like a decade. And that would be Mark Andreessen at A16Z. And so I just want to quote Packy's post here really quickly here. And it's going to bring me to one from Andreessen. He's saying right now, a perfect storm of sentiment shift and technological progress that could mark the end of the great stagflation and the beginning of the great acceleration. Americans want to live in a country that builds things again, which brings me to in the throes of the pandemic, at the lows, this was April of 2020, at least in the markets, at least in the public markets, and maybe from a sentiment standpoint, when we were in, I think what many people have called a black hole, no one knew what was going to happen. Mark Andreessen wrote this post, and I think it really was a shock at, at the time. It was basically a pretty brutal kind of recount of how we got to where we are, okay, the harsh reality of not heeding the warnings, and then saying it's time to build, and he said part of the 
problem is clearly foresight, a failure of imagination. But the other part of the problem is that we didn't do in advance and we're failing to do now. And that failure of action and specifically our widespread inability to build. And I think that's really interesting. Now, let me just tie this all together because it brings me to the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, okay, who many people feel very, very, like they think that she is an up and coming star as far as in democratic politics. But she's talking about this movement that she's had trying to get young people around the idea, like we just put in this chips act. We are going to have hundreds of thousands of great jobs to build things like semiconductors here. Okay. But it doesn't feel like Americans or at least Gen Zers or whatever want to build here in America. They want to do these kind of- They want of, to build their like, audience. Well, I mean, influencers, man. That, that, that's exactly it. So let's tie all of that together a little bit because you're always out there looking for talent, whether they be for people to come work at First Mark, whether they be to invest in new ideas. You guys invest early at the seed stage, right? You're looking for young folks who have great ideas, right? That you want to invest in for probably decades. And I know that you've invested in individual founders multiple times, right? But it doesn't seem like these kids want to build right now. They want to do, do the hard jobs. They want to, like you say, they want to build. Them. I don't want to get on. We could go. We could go to the rail of immigration, but that'd be hard. I think that America is a great place because a lot of people come from all over the world because they think it's a great place in which to build, and I think that's part of it. But we are not going to have the labor. We don't have the labor today and the skilled labor today to fill those jobs. And that could be engineering and making chips, or that could be providing healthcare. And you have to hope that there's some way for us to be able to provide the skilled labor we need for basically redomestication of a lot of our hardware over the next 10, 20 years. And people are talking about everything from rare earth metals and being able to mine those and use those here for things like electronic vehicles, all the way through being able to make our own chips and being less reliant on Taiwan and therefore less fearful of China into tying some of these mega trends together. But do we really have the people and are we producing enough engineers? Are we producing enough people who are ready, willing, and able to be really excited to go to Ohio and work in a chip factory? I hope so. I, I I think those are going to be great opportunities. There are going to be much better opportunities than I guess that generation's grandfather had in the last uh, manufacturing boom in America. But I really hope that's going to happen. And I'm hoping that it's easy to announce factories to be built. And there's obviously beautiful, great ribbon cuttings around that. I, I hope that people, especially the politicians, are following through with what else needs to happen that's less ceremonial and is more long term in terms of making sure those people have the right skills, are doing the right things, and we're setting ourselves up for long-term success. Last thing before we get out of here, because you talked about your personal interest, but also first mark in investing in healthcare. And you see this as a mega trend that technology can just change dramatically over the next few decades. And I just want to remind our listeners, and they know that Roe, which is a company that you were a very early investor on, you're on the board of, Zach Ritano has been on the pod recently, the CEO, I'm in founder. And we've been talking a little bit about my experience with Roe Body, which is a program that they uh, instituted earlier this year. It's focused on some of these weight loss drugs that you guys all 
all have been hearing about. We're recording this on Tuesday morning and shortly after the opening and Novo Nordisk, which makes Wagovi, which is the drug that I have been taking through the Robody program over the last six months. I've lost nearly 35 pounds doing that. One of the reasons I started on the program was I was focused on my health broader, not the fact that I was 6'2", 226 pounds, not massively overweight, but just given like a whole host of things, I got to probably my max weight there in the pandemic and a lot of those sorts of things played into that. But a lot of my doctors are saying, you got to lower your cholesterol, you got to lower your blood pressure. And the guys, this is all my experience, okay? So I'm just not like making it. Well, I don't think that's dissimilar from most Americans. People can stand to lose a few pounds and being overweight really shortens your life. So my doctors were saying, you got to do things to work on your sleep apnea, right? So the cholesterol, the blood pressure, all those sorts of things. So you know, losing nearly 35 pounds in six months on this program, for me, it's changed my life. And you and I've talked about it a lot. But when I see a headline like today, okay, so there was a a major study, it was just released, obesity drug Wagovi cuts risk of heart attacks and strokes by 20%, okay? So the stock is up 15% on this. And this is why we're talking about this right now. And remind everybody, what's that total amount in in terms of billions of dollars of market? So Nova Norris is now nearly a $420 billion market cap. And I just want to remind people that Pfizer, which created obviously the first vaccine that was approved, is now a $200 billion market. Just think about that. So we had this, and and Moderna has retraced all of its gains, okay, from uh, what it did in the pandemic. And listen. But just remember, so Novo has gained $50 billion in market cap in the last five minutes because of this drug. So it's truly all the data that's been coming out. I wouldn't say all the data, nothing's all or nothing, but a lot of the data coming out saying is saying that this drug has very limited side effects. This drug helps you lose weight. By losing weight, you are going to increase the quality and quantity of your life. And this might be the next wonder drug where there's a fair portion of people in the world who take this for a long time. And it's the beginning of the reversing of this terrible obesity trend, which we've seen for the last 40 years. And just to put a finer point on that, so Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, they nearly have a combined trillion dollars in market cap. And a lot of these gains over the last, call it, year or so have been powered by these drugs. And when you see studies like this, and it's saying that if you're obese and you're taking this drug, it reduces the chance of potentially reduces the chance by 20% of heart attack or stroke. This is one of the main reasons why at 50 years old, at my max weight, I wanted to do this and get a bit more healthy. It's done all that. And so this is looking good, feeling good. Top of the world. I see what you did there. All right, Rick Heitzman, I really appreciate you coming in. A little bit of a pulse check on the tech markets. A little Things are looking up slowly but surely. You're seeing the green shoots. I'll tell you one thing. I I think the first time you came on the pod with Guy and me was on the tape, and it was at some point in late 2021. And you were kind of pessimistic at a time where a lot of people were optimistic, uh, at least on the private markets. And I know you were on the public markets too, because we were talking the NASDAQ at the time, and you've been cautiously optimistic over the course of this year, at least looking into your portfolio and some of the trends that you're seeing, maybe some of the kind of conversations you were having with LPs, with peers. So it's been a really interesting almost two years as we've been talking about all of this. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out if we were to see public markets basically take a little bit of a dip and see where the private markets go, given the dry power, given a lot of the revaluation, giving some of the different sentiment shifts that we've seen and trends so far. So Rick, we really appreciate your contribution to the pod, and we hope to have you back again very soon. Thanks, man, for joining us. Thanks. It was awesome. 
you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.